All right, good morning. Welcome to the Tuesday morning men's Bible study at Park City's Presbyterian Church. So glad that you could join us this morning. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here. If I've never met you before, I'd love to meet you after. If you were with us last week, uh, this is not unusual to you, but if you missed us last week, maybe this is. So uh, if you're not aware, we did have a major leak in a water line in our attic, which uh, flooded, I don't know, about a third of our campus, and so which includes the Fellowship Hall, where we normally meet. So for the rest of this semester, at least, we will be meeting right here in the sanctuary for our large group time. And then we will break up into our groups, into our tables, um, although we don't really have tables anymore. Uh, we'll break up into our groups and scatter throughout the church. So again, uh, if, if this is your first time, the beauty and the magic of our Tuesday morning men's Bible study is not just a, a pastor like me speaking to you, but it's really what happens after that. It's the discussion that you have as men through God's word in a group uh, that's where the magic really happens. We believe that the Lord uses his word and he uses the fellowship of the saints and the Holy Spirit in all of us to really press and apply the word deep into our hearts. And so we want you to do that. If you do not have a table, if you don't have a group, please come see us afterwards. We'll help you find one. Uh, and then it's gonna be a, a little bit of a free-for-all uh, these days. So after this, you're welcome to spread out throughout the church. You can spread out throughout the sanctuary, you're welcome to go. All of the classrooms underneath us are uh, fair game and open for you. There are seating areas all over the Great Hall as well as upstairs in the mezzanine, and so you can find a place to sit there. There is a glass meeting room right up beside these stairs. I know a few guys were meeting in the, the library over here. Tons of places for you to find. If you need help finding a good spot for your group to meet, again, come see me or Elaine. We'd love to help you do that. Uh, last thing, and I said this last week, and I promise this will be my last time to say it. We want you to have coffee, we want you to have donuts, and we are breaking some rules by having them in here, which I think is kind of fun, the rule breaker in me. But I promised our facilities staff is that we would clean up after ourselves. You did a great job last week, let's do that again. Uh, they are working so hard these days with all that's going on on our campus, and so if you could just pick up your coffee, pick up your donut, whatever you brought in here, throw it away on your way out, that would really help us out. All right. All right, we're working our way through the book of Colossians. It's been a great study so far. Uh, we have our work cut out for us this morning. So let us, I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna dive into Colossians 1 in the beginning of Colossians chapter two. Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us. Um, we need you. And that's about as simple a prayer as we could offer this morning, that we desperately need you. Uh, even that... Um, Saying that and being honest about that says something about who we are as men, that we are needy and dependent. To be called sons means that we're your children, and so we need you to be our father this morning. This morning we bring our honesty, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be honest. We live in a fallen and broken world, a world that's full of suffering. And so we pray that you would help us to be honest about that suffering, but also the questions that that suffering causes in us and the way that it makes us question even what we believe to be true about you and the gospel. So help us to confront these things. Use your word to pierce us through. And we pray nothing less that this would not be an intellectual exercise, but that we would leave this place as we go to work to our labors today 
that we would leave this place more changed, more conformed into the image of the Son, that we truly would be in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So we're talking about Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And we've been talking about how there are such amazing parallels between the Colossian church 2,000 years ago and us. That what was going on in the Colossian church was kind of a pluralism in that town that was seeping in to their thinking. That as they came to know Jesus Christ and saw him as Lord and Savior, a kind of um, philosophy from the Greeks was be seeping into their thinking as well as kind of a broken system of Judaism and some pagan religion too. And all of these things began to kind of confront their image of Jesus. It gave them a low view of Christ and it distorted their view of themselves because as we saw last week, our identities fundamentally is to be image bearers who are in Christ. And we've looked at that phrase that Paul uses that phrase over 160 times in his letters in the New Testament that rather than calling us Christians, Paul would say we are in Christ. That is who we are. That if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are so identified with him that you are united to him. You are in Christ Jesus. And so this morning as we continue that theme, and the theme of being in Christ and having that image in us distorted and our understanding of Jesus diminished, we're talking about the influences around us that distort that. And as we begin and as we think about what Paul has to say for us at the end of chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, I wanna begin to talk about one of the great influences in the American church, particularly in the last 50 years. And it's the so-called prosperity gospel. You might think of it as prosperity theology. Now, we live in a country that has enjoyed incredible prosperity. And while prosperity and abundance certainly affects us, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit, certainly impacts us as Christians, I want to broaden your thinking about prosperity this morning. That When we think about prosperity theology, we're not just talking about monetary prosperity but all kinds of prosperity, right? To think that America has been built on this idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So whatever enters your mind this morning that you think would make you happy, that if we are defined as Americans as this promise of the, the pursuit of happiness, that if you pursue it, you can achieve it. And whatever you think it would make you happy, that thing is part of our imagination as Americans of what is prosperous. So it could be monetary, but also could be any kind of success. It also could be any kind of health. In fact, it could be anything that would resemble the absence of suffering. That we believe fundamentally, somehow as Americans, that to be happy is to be healthy and to be wealthy be prosperous. Now the question is, is when that thinking infiltrates us as Christians and, and, and begins to mix with our understanding of God and the gospel, what is it that's produced? Well, if you go all the way back to the end of World War II and imagine, right, what that was like coming out of the Second Great War. 
and you have an economy that's decimated, right? You have so much of the fabric of what it meant to be American that was uh, fragile. And there was a longing, right, that God would restore our country, right? And as that longing began to take root, local congregations began to preach a message that that was God's vision for us. Now, I don't want to point fingers today so much. And so I I told actually a group this morning that I actually listed a few names historically where we've seen prosperity gospel preached, and I took it out, and this is why. It's because it's easy to point the finger at prosperity preachers and fail to recognize that I believe prosperity theology is in all of us. Because deep down, we all avoid suffering, do we not? And that's a fundamentally human thing. I mean, it goes all the way back to us as kids, right? If, if you touch a stove and it burns you, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to avoid touching the stove. And I think deep down in us, we're kind of wired to mitigate against suffering. But as we begin, again, I'm not going to name names, but I just want to def- define a few things for you. So what is the prosperity gospel? Let me give you a definition. The prosperity gospel is a gospel, and I'm going to put that in quotes, right? It's not a true gospel, but it's a gospel that says that our freedom, our health, and our ability to be liberated from any kind of poverty or disease or any kind of suffering, that all of that was liberated on the cross. That when Jesus died on the cross, it meant that Christians would no longer suffer. That because he suffered, we do not suffer. And that in this life now, God's vision and his faithfulness to you is your happiness. And, and I'm using that word happiness not in the term that we're going to look at this morning, how God might define it as your holiness, which is one and the same. If you've ever been to our church, right, you've heard that preached, that our greatest happiness is our holiness. They're not mutually exclusive. But how you might envision happiness or how I might envision happiness, that that's what faithfulness equals. And so the prosperity gospel says that, look, God wants you to be prosperous. That's why Jesus died. And so if you really believe in him, then your life will be prosperous. It will be fruitful. You will no longer suffer. You will achieve your greatest dreams. Right, you will have great wealth. You will be healthy. Now, here's the problem with that. First, it's just not true. And I think that's where we have to start this morning. It's absolutely not true. And I'm not, I'm not even just saying theologically not true. We'll get to that in a second. It's practically not true. Every one of us in this room this morning and watching online, every one of us, has, is, and will experience suffering this side of heaven. And that is true for you whether you are a Christian or not. You will experience suffering. And the Bible does not promise that as Christians we are going now to avoid suffering. In fact, you actually see the opposite. That as Christians we will experience suffering. 
It's promised. So the question is, what do we do with that? Right? What do we do with that? And, and I think the place we have to begin as we dive in is we have to wrestle with this part in us that, I mean, ever since the beginning. Honestly, it goes back to the fall. That's where suffering entered the world. When Adam and Eve sinned and sin enters the world and brokenness comes, suffering came with it. And we have to go back there and we have to go to the deepest parts of ourselves, which we don't like, and we have to begin to wrestle with the fact that we are hardwired to do everything in our power to avoid suffering. It's natural. We don't like it. We don't like the way it feels. We don't like it not only for us, but for other people. For some of you this morning, you might be experiencing your own suffering. Others of you might be experiencing the suffering of others as you watch loved ones go through painful things. And when that happens, you will undoubtedly ask a question that looks something like this. Why do bad things happen to good Christians? And if you've ever wondered that, if you've ever asked that question, I would submit to you that prosperity theology has seeped into your heart and mind. That even if you know, you're not prone to watch a televangelist, even if you've even pushed against the idea that um, God wants me to have lots of money and so if I give money to the church, I'm gonna suddenly be rich, right? Even if you've pushed against all of some of those teachings of the prosperity gospel, even if there's part of you that says, isn't God's faithfulness tied to my health, my wealth, and my prosperity? And that if, he's, if I don't have those things, then, then he must not be faithful. Then I would say somewhere in there, Prosperity theology has infiltrated your heart and mind. I think it's done that for probably all of us at some level. It's done that for me. And I'll, I'll talk more about that a little bit this morning, but you know, the last year in our family has been incredibly difficult with great grief and great suffering. And even today, about a year in, I'm realizing that I'm mad at God. I didn't know I was. But I am, and you know why I am? I don't like it. And because I believe that he is good, and I believe that he is my God and my Father, I'm questioning, God, why would you do it that way? And this isn't just about prosperity preachers over the last 50 years, but you can go back and see these kinds of questions, even the Bible. What do we do with suffering? And what do we do it as Christians who believe in Jesus, how do we face our suffering in a broken world? Well, the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians says rejoice. Rejoice. I want you to look with me. Colossians 1 verse 24. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. So very quickly with you, what I wanna do is try to answer the question, how can Paul say that? How can the apostle Paul say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake? How can we see this theme, in fact, not just in the apostle Paul, but throughout the New Testament, Peter, James, 
the apostles all echoing the same idea that there is joy, not in avoiding suffering, but actually the Christian life is finding joy through suffering. Because on the other side of suffering, we experience our greatest joy. So the first thing I want to look at in Paul, I want you to see that for Paul, he suffered for Christ. He suffered for Christ. He didn't just suffer for suffering's sake, but he suffered for Christ. Again, I want you to look with me, Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice, Paul says, in my sufferings for your sake. Now, I think if we're going to think about our own suffering, and we're hearing Paul talk about his suffering, we need to find that. What is suffering? How did Paul suffer? So to answer that question, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. You can turn there. You can write this down on your sheet, and I'll just read this to you. This is probably one of the most complete sections in the New Testament where Paul talks about, gives a list of all the ways that he suffered. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was shipwrecked, he faced danger from every possible group of people you could imagine, and then he says on top of all of that, I'm just worried about you. The apostle Paul suffered greatly, but he didn't suffer for suffering's sake. He suffered for Christ. And in Colossians 1, verse 24, he describes it like this, and it's easily the most controversial verse in the book of Colossians. It's one of the most controversial verses in the entire New Testament. And I think you'll see why pretty quickly. This is what he says. He says, in my flesh, look with me, verse 24. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Let me read that again. I want you to read along with me. I want you to see what he's saying. Paul says, again, going back to the beginning of the verse, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So not only are we asking, okay, how can you rejoice, but what does that mean? How can Paul say that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now first, let me tell you what I think it does not mean. It does not mean that there is something lacking in Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our salvation. That's what it does not mean. Why do I know that? Because Paul wrote the book of Colossians to correct any kind of thinking that would say that the the cross of Christ is not sufficient. We'll see that all throughout Colossians. So in context, it can't mean that. And not only the book of Colossians, but you see that throughout his writings. When Christ died on the cross once and for all, 
it was sufficient. So any kind of lack in Christ's afflictions that Paul must be imagining, he's not thinking about a lack of Christ suffering on the cross for our salvation. That is not what he's talking about. So what is he talking about? Well, let me give you a few options. Let me give you a few options. One option is called the quota view. And this idea that we see in scripture that there will be suffering of the saints before Christ returns. An appointed number of martyrs that will die for the sake of the gospel. And so one view is that when Paul says he's filling up what is lacking, that he is uh, doing his part to fill the quota. Okay? That's one view. Now, I think the problem with this view is it assumes a lot from other parts of the Bible, and it's placing that here without reading Paul's words for what they really are. And it looks very clear that in here, Paul's sufferings is not just for this kind of eschatological thing, but it's actually for the Colossian church. That there's a present benefit to the sufferings of Paul in this moment, not just a future. Another view is that um, Paul is saying, well, his sufferings are very similar to Christ. That he's emulating Christ, and in the same way, Christ suffered on the cross, and so he is going to now suffer. And as he suffers, they are Christ's suffering. And, And I'm tempted to like this view because of that idea of union. You might call this the union of Christ view. In being united to Christ, Paul is saying, well, look, I'm, I'm filling up what is lacking in being united to him. But again, as much as I'm tempted to love that view, I think it doesn't just read this as plain as it possibly could be. I'll give you one more view. Um, there's many, many more. Um, but it's similar to the quote of you, but a little bit different that there is going to be suffering, right, for the church. We know that from Scripture. And that as Christians, there is appointed suffering for the church. And so Paul is carrying on that legacy, right? And so he is suffering, and that legacy of Christians following in Christ's footsteps are going to suffer too. That's probably the closest to, to where I kind of find myself where I I really see what Paul is doing here. But I think in all of these views, there's some merit, but there's also some questions. And so I think for you, I I want you to wrestle with it as well. Because literally, you can do research on this, and with every commentary and every uh, theologian you find, you're going to find a different view. Because this is one of those verses that's difficult for us to understand. What is Paul saying? Let me give you what I think. And again, this is not my own. I didn't invent this. You can see this in several different theologians. Uh, Probably most made popular by John Piper, at least a version of this. Uh, But Guy Richard, RTS professor, would be one. Um, Scott McKnight, uh, another theologian commentator, would be another. I, I like this view because it's the most plain reading of the text. And it's trying to answer, what is this phrase? Filling up what is lacking. What does that mean? And it goes to other places where Paul uses that language. Let me give you a couple examples real quick. And it matters. I'm going to show you why it matters. 1 Corinthians 16, 17. Paul's talking about um, two friends who uh, he's rejoicing in. And he says this, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 17. I rejoice at the coming 
of Stephanus and Fortunatus and I have such a hard time saying this one, Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. Did you hear that language? I rejoice at the coming of these friends because they've made up for your absence. They've filled up the lack of your presence in my life. I've missed you, Corinthian church, but I praise God for these three friends because they're filling up what is lacking, okay? Again, let me give you another example. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, okay? So another brother that he's talking about. And he says this, he says, so receive him, verse 29, receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So again, same kind of language. This, this brother has filled up what was lacking. I'm no longer with you, and so this brother has filled up what's lacking in your presence. So take those ideas, those phrases, and now apply them to what Paul is saying. What would be lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the Colossian church? What would be lacking in the afflictions of Christ for us today? Christ is not with us in bodily form. You have heard of the sufferings of Christ. You've been taught the sufferings of Christ. You've been told of the sufferings of Christ, but none of us have physically seen with our own eyes the sufferings of Christ. And so Paul is filling up what is lacking. He's giving us a visible representation of the sufferings of Christ. And in that way, suffering has become evangelism for Paul. He's tangibly embodying the gospel to the point that he is suffering. And in his suffering for the Colossian church for the sake of Christ, they are seeing now the sufferings of Christ manifest in his body. You've heard of Christ's suffering, but now you see it in the sufferings of Paul. What does that mean for us? It means I think there's a way that we can embrace suffering as Christians and see that not only are we called not to avoid it, but perhaps God has appointed it to us. That as we suffer, we now embody and even share in the sufferings of Christ so that an unbelieving world could know what suffering really leads to. It leads to joy. The second thing I want you to see, and I think it supports this idea, is we see that Paul suffered for the church. So as Paul suffered for Christ, notice what he says he says in verse 24, I rejoice my sufferings for your sake, the Colossian church. But then he takes that further at the end of verse 24. He says, for the sake of his body, Christ's body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So again, he's not suffering for suffering's sake. He's suffering for Christ, for the Colossian church, and even the church of all time, for the body of Christ. And we see Paul's devotion to serving the church throughout his letters. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, 
Again, listen real quickly. It says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about every wind of doctrine by human coming craftiness and deceitful schemes. I read all of that passage to you because there's such amazing parallels to the book of Colossians. Paul's saying that uh, God has appointed these gifts to the church to build up the body, to build up the church so they would be mature in faith so that when they face pressures from the outside world and all of these false teachings that they would stand mature. In the same way Paul is writing to Colossian church trying to build up the body, to strengthen the church so that they would be able to withstand all of the outside pressures of a pluralistic society. He is suffering for Christ's sake for the benefit of this Colossian church, but also for our benefit as well. When you think about church today, do you think about it on those terms? As you have ever, and I don't know if you're looking for a church today, and this is not me trying to convince you to come here. And if this is your church home, this is not, uh, well, maybe it is. Some way of trying to get you to stop complaining. Maybe it is. Um, how do you approach thinking about the church? Do, do, when you've looked for a church, and I don't know when the last time it was for you, did you think, um, let me find a church I can go suffer for? Just really want to go find the church I want to go suffer for. Really, I really just, God has called me to lay my life down for the church, and so what church has he called me to go suffer for? Or is it something a little bit more, I don't know, consumeristic? Because again, prosperity theology has seeped into us a little bit more than we realize. And you think, well, does this church have the things that I like, the programs that I want? Do I like the preacher? Do I like the style of music? Ugh, do I like these people? So often we approach church, we think, what's in it for me? And we approach it consumeristically. And you want to know what's so scary? This pastors like me play into that. And so then we're tempted to do our best to give you goods and services for you to consume. And it perpetuates this idea of a consumer-driven church. And I want to challenge you this morning with Paul saying, I'm suffering for your sake I'm suffering for the body. I'm suffering for the church. And I'm asking you to consider how might God be calling you to lay your life down for his bride, for his body, for his church? How has God called you to use a word that Paul uses to be a steward of all that he's given you to suffer for the church? Again, look with me, verse 25. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me from you. Paul is stewarding his life for the sake of the church, right? A, a steward is an overseer. A steward is a manager. Paul recognizes that his life is not his own. And God has given him everything to now manage, to steward for the sake of building up the church. 
What has he called you to steward? And again, as you use that word, does it include money? It does, but it's way beyond that. In a prosperous society, sometimes money is the easiest thing for us to give. Sometimes the hardest thing for us to give is our time. Sometimes the hardest thing for us to give is our very hearts. What is he calling you to steward, to suffer for the sake of the church? Third thing I want you to see. Paul suffered for the gospel. Look with me, verse 25. He continues, he says, to make the word of God fully known. Again, he's rejoicing in his sufferings because he's suffering for Christ, for the church, in order to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to all his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among you the Gentiles are, the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, for the sake of time, I want to make this point very, very quick, but I also want to make it clear. When you think about the mystery of the gospel, notice what Paul says. To make known, verse 27, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is this mystery? It's our union with Christ. Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. When you faced suffering, what is it that you need the most? Hope. It's that thing that's elusive when we suffer that we think, ah, how long, oh Lord, right? I always think, God, why would you do this? It's a cry for hope. When we ask along with the people of Israel back in the book of Exodus, God, where are you? <laughs> it's a cry for hope. Paul says, Christ in you, Christian, is the hope that we have. It's the hope of glory, that we are united to Christ, and this is the mystery of the gospel. And Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings because he has dedicated everything to make that mystery known a mystery that has been handed down through the ages. If you're with us on Sunday mornings, we're preaching through the book of Daniel, and we just saw this last week who God revealed a mystery to a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. And that mystery is that there is an everlasting kingdom that will tear down every human kingdom, and it will be established by a stone, a rock who is Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and this kingdom will reign forever. And he has called you to be a part of that kingdom. That even in the midst of suffering, even through your suffering, he's called you to be sons and princes in his kingdom. So last thing before we go to our groups. This is where we end this morning. Ultimately, number four, Paul suffered for the maturity of faith. So this morning you might be hearing some of this and say, okay, like I'm not an apostle, I'm not a missionary, uh, I've never been on a ship, let alone uh, had the you know, ability to be shipwrecked. Right? I've never thought of myself going suffering for the church or suffering for the sake of gospel. And, and so you might say, look, Paul, I'm just suffering. So what am I supposed to do with that? We see throughout the scriptures that God uses suffering to mature us as believers. Look with me, verse 28. Paul says, him we proclaim that is Jesus, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. He continues Colossians 2 verse 1. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have seen me face to face that their hearts would be encouraged, knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ in whom all hidden of all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The Colossian church was in danger of having their view of Jesus and the gospel being diluted. And so Paul is suffering so that their faith might be mature to withstand the pressures of an unbelieving world. God uses suffering to give us a mature faith. We see this throughout the scriptures. I'll give you just one example this morning. This is 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says, don't be surprised by suffering. Expect it. Why? Because God is using your suffering to build you up, to strengthen you, to test you, to test the genuineness of our faith. He goes on, 1 Peter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer, listen to this, according to God's will. Let those who suffer according to God's will, and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Don't be surprised. Suffering awaits us all. But God uses us to mature our faith and able so that we can withstand an unbelieving world. What aspects of your faith are immature this morning? There are parts of you that need maturing could it be that God, according to his will, has appointed suffering in order to make you stronger so that you could withstand the schemes of the devil in an unbelieving world that wants you to have a diminished low view of Christ and a false view of what suffering means for us? I leave you with this. This is the writer to the Hebrews, great preacher, who said this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of God. Jesus did not avoid the suffering of the cross. But he knew that in through suffering, there was joy on the other side. As Christians who are in Christ, as we share in Christ's sufferings, I want you to know that there is hope. The hope of Christ in us, the hope of glory, and the hope that there is joy. Joy of the resurrection life on the other side of suffering. Until Christ comes again, we must wrestle now. 
And I want you to do that now in your groups, to wrestle and be honest with the suffering that we all face. But what I want you to see is that we are not without hope. But with the Apostle Paul, we can rejoice. For Christ is in us, and he's working through us, and he's coming again. Let me pray. Father, be with these men now as they discuss these things. These are heavy and weighty things for us to discuss early in the morning. But I pray that they would mark us. I pray that they would, might even change our outlook as we go from here into our places of work. Whatever we're experiencing this morning, I pray that you would draw near to my brothers. Draw near to me. Help us to bring our sufferings to you to the foot of the cross and help us now to share in the sufferings of Christ that we might experience the joy on the other side. We ask this in your strong and holy name. Amen.